Owen is going to come and speak to us now, I believe. He's very tall. Uh, why don't you come out? Let's, let's pray for you. Brilliant. So we're continuing with our theme of uh, our year of biblical literacy. So I, I scattered some Bibles around because I'm really proactive like that. So everybody should have a Bible. <laughs> uh, why don't we... Um, Stretch out a hand and let's just, let's just pray for Owen. Um, God, we thank you for this, uh, this man. I thank you for his passion for you. Um, I th- thank you for the authenticity that he carries, um, in his faith and in his leadership. And I pray that as he teaches us now, uh, that we will learn, uh, we will be responsive and, um, open to what you have to say to us. Amen. Amen. You're right. So the uh, Yorkshire accent, accent feels a bit contagious. That, that was what it was, yeah. Um, so we are continuing. There we go. Our year of biblical literacy, asking all sorts of questions up front. Like, what is this ancient text? We're, last week we were we were discovering how. How did it work last week? Actually, was anyone here last week? So, um, I was famous last week on the screen at last. Wonderful. Um, I hope that wasn't too awkward. Um, it seemed like the right thing to do um, at the time. Anyway, um, last week we were exploring um, how first this book, first and foremost, this book is concerned to remember uh, what God has done and tell the story of, of who he is, what he's up to, saving and delivering a people. Um, and in light of that saving, dramatic, intervening action of God. In light of that, then it invites us into covenant relationship to be his, his people, um, recovering that vocation to reflect something of his image back into the world. It's not some ugly dictatorship, some ugly power grab that then we just have to kind of read the rules and behave it or else. Actually, no, it's the sort of beautiful true kind of authority uh, invitation to come under God's authority that is wrought in love and sacrifice and that's very different and very beautiful I think. Someone um, after last week came up and said um, oh yes uh, that's, that's so good and I, I see this, 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 the beauty of this, the picture, the story of God that's being um, written um, throughout this, this whole collection of writings but how do I know it's true? Like, how do I know that it hasn't all been changed and corrupted along the way? Or that it wasn't just made up by some sort of clever but twisted theologians who just set it loose in history and now look what's happened. Can I trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? That's what they're saying. Because what about the Chinese whispers effect? You know, you've got these ancient texts that have been copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. Haven't they all kind of been distorted along the way and legends and myths just grown up out of all proportion with reality? How do we know that we've got anything like access to anything like the beginning of the chain in that process? And even if we did have access, can we trust what the, the biblical authors were saying. Were they in any position to know about what they were writing about? 
nagging questions. Have you ever had them? I told the person last week that what they'd have to do is come back this week because we're going to go after some of those questions tonight. Where do these words actually come from? Can we trust them? Recently, um, like a few weeks ago, I got to see inside um, the ZTEC engine of an old Ford Fiesta. And the, the, the engine casing was off, so I could peer right inside of it and see the amazing um, cams and um, the tops of the, the cylinders and the spark plugs and things. Amazing. Um, and I had sort of just 10 minutes pouring over this. I couldn't stop looking at it. Um, I, I have, still have no real idea how a, an engine works, um, uh, let alone the particularities of a ZTEC old Ford Fiesta engine. Um, but what is, what's happened ever since I see one of those old Ford Fiestas going past, I look at it in a completely different light in the last few weeks. And look, that is majestic. <laughs> this, this small engineering miracle just pootling along. Um, now, I say all that because we're going to lift the lid tonight on how this is made, on where these words come from. Um, it is unlikely that you are going to arrive at the end of what I've got to say with, uh, you know, in that place of fullness of understanding. Um, but it might just be that as we, as we go along that you um, find it interesting as we, as we sort of look un- under the lid. It might be that you come to, s- to regard this book in a whole, with a whole new level of admiration. You're like, wow, just what has gone in um, to this over thousands of years. And it, it's awesome. So that's, that's like the engine. That's my hope, prayer uh, for tonight. Um, I've arranged it all into two um, sort of mini lectures, if you will. Um, a number of you will have heard a lecture recently, and I apologise that I'm giving you two more um, tonight. Um, but I'm getting to live the dream here as the lecturer, so humour me, if you will. I do not have my watch again. Um, I haven't found it this afternoon, having lost it at some point this morning after giving it to Morgan, my 11-month son. Um, so could somebody time the, the 10 minutes, and that will kind of keep me... Otherwise, I'll just prattle on for, for too long. Rich, give me the little 10-minute nudge if I've gone over. Maybe I'll even get there before the 10 minute uh, mark. That would be something, wouldn't it? Anyway, are you ready? Time on. Lecture number one is entitled Hasn't it all been changed slash corrupted? Go. So, back in medieval times, there were this bunch of Jewish scholar dudes known as the Masoretes. These guys must have been some serious introverts because it seems that all of they did, all they did with their entire kind of careers or something, um, probably didn't have careers. As it, their, their entire life seems to have been <laughs> copying out the Hebrew scriptures all by hand, over and over again. Um, and we have the fruit of their labour in the form of things like this. Um, they get write it double-sided manuscripts. Um, banged it together into kind of some of the earliest books uh, called a codex. And this is the Aleppo Codex, so named because it lived in Syria, in Aleppo, uh, for some of its life. This comes from the 10th century. So it's 
over a thousand years old. Um, it now lives in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and you can go and visit it in the Book of the Shrine if ever you're passing through Jerusalem. Anyway, um, we can zoom in on this, and just to see the amazing stuff that they did back in the day. Um, they put it in these, these three columns. Zoom in again, and you can see um, you've got this sort of Hebrew text going right to left uh, there, and then in the margins you've got all of these notes. And these guys were not just copying out um, the text, but they were making all these sort of notes and record-keeping along the way, marking down the number of times particular pieces of vocabulary appear. Um, they even marked down the very central letter uh, within the whole thing. And all of this was about preserving the text. They were obsessed with preserving the integrity of the text, not making any mistakes. That's what all those calculations were to track along the way. So much so that the Masoretic text, as it's called, uh, is, is generally regarded as the best um, authority that we have on the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so that's that. But that's the 10th century. Do we not have anything earlier than the 10th century? Yes, is the answer. Uh, we have something called the Septuagint. This is another important source document. This is a Greek translation of the um, Old Testament that was made um, about three centuries before Jesus. Um, we still have some fragments from the second century uh, before Jesus. Um, this one actually lives in Manchester, up the road. Um, and that's from the, the second century. Um, by, by the time, there's loads of them, but by the time you get to the fourth century, we have um, kind of the first near-complete copy of this. Um, go to the next slide and you'll see what we're talking about. This is the, the Codex Vat- Vatican something. It lives in the Vatican anyway. It's, I can't remember its name. Um, this is taken from the beginning of the Psalms. In, if you zoom in on this, and some of you, maybe from Regents and do a bit of Greek, I'm not sure. Um, but in fact, some of the letters in Greek are the same, so we can all do this. Um, can you see what this says? You've got an, an M, essentially. A, K, A, that's an R, I, A, Makarios is that first word, which means blessed. And it's the same word that appears in the Sermon on the Mount in the Greek there. Uh, Makarios are the, the poor in spirit, that bit. The beginning of the Psalms, what is the, what's the first line? Blessed are those who do not follow in the counsel of the wicked, something like that. There it is, right there from the 4th century. Amazing, interesting. Um, incidentally, the, have you ever um, read in the New Testament where it quotes from the Old Testament? And if you're like me, you sort of read that and then you turn back to Isaiah or wherever it's, it's quoting from. And, and it's not quite the same. <laughs> like, come on, what's going on there? What's going on is that this was the version of the scriptures used by Greek-speaking Jews in Jesus' day. This is the version of the scriptures known by the um, authors of the New Testament. And so when they're, when they're quoting from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint. Whereas our English Bibles are based on direct translations from some of the Hebrew manuscripts that we have. And they're a bit different. And that's where, that's what's going on there. That's also what's going on when the ordering of the books in our English Bibles is not in that neat. We looked at it um, a couple of weeks ago, that kind of neat 
Tanakh, Torah, prophets, writings, those three categories of the Jewish scriptures. We're a bit shuffled because they're following the particular order that the Septuagint uses. Are you with me so far? Okay, so we've got the Masoretic text. That's this um, Hebrew 10th century thing. We've got the Septuagint, uh, and we've got loads of others as well. This is sort of the simplified picture. Um, But then what happens? 1947, there's a young Bedouin shepherd boy, and he's lost his goat (laughs) up in these hills near the Dead Sea. And um, he throws a stone into the cave, as the story goes, to, to see if a little goat noise bleat comes, comes back at him. He doesn't hear this. Instead, he hears the sound of breaking pottery. He's intrigued. So he climbs down into this cave in the spring of 1947. And what does he find? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, he, <laughs> this is really funny. He sells them because, you know, the, the significance of them is not, you know, this is kind of, Cool and old, um, but he's, he's a shepherd boy. They sell them to this Syrian pastor guy for seven pounds. <laughs> um, who then take who who recognises more of the significance of them? He takes them to America, and in 1951, there's this advert that appears in the appears in the Wall Street Journal classified ads section, saying the Dead Sea Scrolls for sale uh, would make a lovely gift to uh, some religious institution. Uh, off the back of this, and at the same time, I think the kind of archaeological community is getting wise, and um, you know, the rest is history, isn't it? But I think that's fascinating. <laughs> Classified ads in the Wall Street Journal. Don't see scrolls for sale. Um, okay, blah blah blah. They were they had been put there in the year '67, um, laid to rest, and then they'd just been sat there in those caves for like 2,000 years, and then. The shepherd discovers them. Uh, this was really cool because now scholars could compare. They could hold these texts side by side and they could see how much the Hebrew text had changed over a thousand. Was the Masoretic text really as all it was cracked up to be? Had they really done such a great job of preserving it? And I've just sort of put them side by side so you can see the Masoretic text is there on the left. Um, Qumran is the place where they found these Dead Sea Scrolls. That's the, the ones found by the shepherd boy in the middle. And then you've got the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version that lives in the Vatican uh, currently on the right. You can see, are they the same? Nope. <laughs> are these differences major? Do they change the meaning? Nope. For some texts, there was a scroll that they found in Qumran, uh, this Isaiah scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's pretty much identical um, to the Masoretic. Like it's, it's stunning how similar. I mean, there are some little, little insignificant errors, but it's essentially the same. Amazing. The others are more different, more significant differences. The most significant difference, I think, is Jeremiah and Esther. Um, and you're talking like having six sevenths of the text. So there's, there's a good chunk um, that's, that's different. All of this is to say that this is, yes, an entirely human process in a sense with um, scribal errors and different traditions, different interpretations or whatever being preferred in particular regions or some other regions are combining together some of the traditions. Complex relationship between all of these sources. But it's all absolutely the same story. 
the meaning of the story of God and what he's up to is not at all threatened by these differences. So really what you've got is this overabundance of biblical text, which gives scholars um, the chance to spend their careers lining these up side by side and spotting the differences and working out which one came first and uh, cataloguing all the, the differences, alternative possibles for this little half of this verse. And they spend their whole careers and they add their little contribution to the mountain of, of work that's being done. And what they produce is this. This is the Biblia Hebraica, and you get different editions of this as new scholarship is taken into account. We ten minutes. Okay, I've got about another minute or so on this lecture, you'll be pleased to know. Um, I'm flying here, this is great. Um, so you've got the, the, the Biblia Hebraica, and you can see across the top you've got the Hebrew text, and then on the bottom you've got what they call a textual apparatus. The same thing... They've got past these rounds. This is the same thing that they do with the Greek New Testament. And so there's the amazing number of manuscripts, fragments through to complete um, copies of the New Testament scriptures. And the scholars piece them all together and produce something like this, uh, which is not something like this. They produce this, <laughs> uh, which you've got the Greek text across the top and then all of this bump along the bottom, this textual apparatus. Just pass that round so everyone can see for themselves what this stuff along the bottom is doing is cataloguing. Um, we're following this ma- particular manuscript here. Here's all the manuscripts that agree with this uh, rendering of the verse, or here's the ones that disagree. And so if you have your Bible open at Deuteronomy, this verse that we were looking at earlier, Deuteronomy 32, 43, you can look down and see a footnote, and there's loads of these throughout don't know if you ever looked down at the footnotes. Uh, but the footnote on that verse um, explains it. In the NIV I've got here, it says, the Masoretic text, and then a, a semicolon, Dead Sea Scrolls, has got people, also the Septuagint, and let the, all the angels worship him. What's going on there? So what you, you've got all the scholarship that produces the Biblica Hebraica and the Greek New Testament. Um, that's like the halfway house. And then committees of scholars will use these, this is the basis of then our English translations, and you've got the NIV committee, or the ESV committee, or, or whatever committee, teams of scholars who spend years pulling together um, their, their translations, making decisions, taking into account the latest scholarship. That's why with the NIV, you've got the, the old NIV, then the TNIV, and then they brought out the 2011 NIV, and they're just like improving, making different decisions on, on how particular... It's amazing the amount of hours going into this. And with the, the New Testament in particular, and this is the very last point, Rich, um, the, the, it's pretty much a science of, of piecing together all of these bits. And they can work out with um, a remarkable uh, confidence, really, what... You know, you can, you can hold the variations can, where there are differences and you can see, oh, that's, that's, that's where an error has crept in. That's why that bit's different or that's why that sect over there would have changed that bit. And, so, and you can work back and with a remarkable confidence in the vast majority of the New Testament know that we've got access to what, to the beginning of the chain, to what the New Testament authors actually wrote. And that's, the end of the lecture. We have a surprising amount of confidence that it hasn't.
being changed and corrupted along the way. Okay? Have a breather. I will. Get rid of that. Okay. Lecture number two. Still, still awake? Lecture number two is entitled, Can We Trust the Authors? So we've got access to what they, they wrote, but how do we know they were telling the truth? And the crux of the matter here is Jesus, right? Because this is the story of God, what he's up to, what he's like. And Jesus comes along as the fulfillment of this story. It's the pinnacle of revelation of who God is, claiming to be nothing less than God with us. And the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus being the fulfillment of God showing us who he is, what he's up to, what he's like, saving and delivering a people. So we're going to focus just on the biographies of Jesus in our ten minutes now, um, and just uh, mainly in Luke's gospel. Um, did they know what they were on about, these, these people who are writing these biographies of Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the beginning of the New Testament, these four Jesus biographies. Who were they to, to, to write the, the definitive stories of the write-ups of, of who Jesus was, what he was about, what happened? Thankfully, helpfully, Luke gives us this little um, window. First, Luke 1, 1 to 4. Turn to it if you have got your Bible. He gives us this, this one sentence, one long sentence um, in Greek. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may, ha- you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. helpful to remember that this chap Luke who's writing this biography of Jesus is the same chap who wrote Acts which is like the sort of part two follow on got Jesus and then you've got the story of the beginnings of the church Luke Acts Acts is also dedicated to Theophilus who was he we wonder he was probably the guy who coughed up the money to um, enable Luke to research and produce Uh, he covered the costs of this and then he got two books of the Bible dedicated to him. How great is that? Um, Luke's stated aim in this opening little sentence is to write an accurate account. And so he actually includes um, tons of historical details all throughout Luke and Acts along the way. So in Acts he's, he, he includes details of... And he doesn't kind of... This is just characteristic of Luke's writing. He's, he's concerned for... Um, sort of historical accuracy along the way. And so as he's writing his account in Acts, there's, there's details of the shipping here. There's particular titles of the Roman officials which changed very location to location. This is all stuff that we can go back and check now. And he gets it all bang on, which would be pretty difficult to do if you're sort of making up a sort of fantastic fictional account of, of how he's writing out of lived experience and halfway through Acts he's writing out of his own lived experience because it, the, the titles change he, previously he's writing like they did this they went there Paul and so and so they did then suddenly he switches to we did this and we went there and this is where he joins the action what's really cool about this is when you trace the, the, the sort of 
the trip that they're going on in Acts. Um, there's this point where they get back to Jerusalem and then Paul gets arrested, leaving Luke twiddling his thumbs for two years in the very place that was the centre of the action where most of the eyewitnesses to Jesus would still have been. Maybe Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, was still in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe they got to hang out. Maybe that explains why in Luke's Gospel you've got all the wonderful detail of Jesus' infancy. Um, but stuff like Mary uh, pondered all these things in her heart. All those sorts of details. We don't know that, but that's quite a thought, I think. Um, what he does tell us is that he was carefully trying to collect together all of the available data. Did other count, accounts of Jesus already exist? Uh, yes, that's what he says, anyway. Um, and in fact, we know what one of his sources that he drew on was. That would be the Gospel according to Mark. Um, if you sort of hold Mark and Luke side by side, there's several bits where he's sort of copy and pasted what Mark has to say, um, and then maybe added a bit or rearranged things. But um, clearly Mark... Uh, existed before. Um, clearly, Luke was drawing on Mark, uh, Mark's account. Um, I think we need to look at some dates as we go. Back to our bookshelf. Uh, on the right of the little crucifix on the shelf is the New Testament. We've got the four biographies and then the rest of the apostolic writings. And then we've got a timeline along the bottom. That's the first century. Now, historians can't quite agree on whether Jesus was killed on the Passover of the year 30 or the year 33. So I've drawn my little arrow there. It doesn't really matter too much for us um, in um, the grand scheme of things today. Um, I think James wrote his letter sort of in the 40s. Um, Paul's writing Galatians uh, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians there, uh, dropping that in 49, 50, 51, those sorts of times. Uh, then you've got Mark who's writing up or the Gospel according to Mark, um, uh, which several indications that that is actually Peter, the Apostle Peter's um, telling of it that Mark is, is writing up. Um, they think that was written 55 to 70, somewhere in that um, window, um, leaving Luke's Gospel to be written, obviously, a bit later, um, anywhere between 62 um, and then adds into the 80s, different theories, blah, 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 blah. What does this mean? It means you've got a gap of about 30, 40 years, perhaps, between Jesus' death um, and resurrection, and then Luke compiling his account. Aha! Here's where the popular imagination kicks in, and uh, clearly this is where the, it was all sort of campfire stories until this point, and... Um, Chinese whispers again and you know people getting a bit carried away as they told the story and then it got bigger the next time and before you know it the uh, the little sort of carpenter Jesus guy who got killed turns into the, the lord of the universe and um, someone's dreamt up the resurrection somewhere along the way and and this is sort of the, the you know Dan Brown kind of pop level theory useful convenient if you want to hold all this stuff at arm's length and not have the lord of the universe actually bear any kind of threat to your um, autonomy. Um, but actually, I think it's a load of nonsense, uh, that kind of theory. And let me tell you why. I have a quilt here uh, that somebody made for uh, my son when he was born. Morgan is his name, and it's got his birthday here in on it, the 29th of October. 
2015. Uh, this quilt, you, you, if you were sort of guessing when did, when was this made, you'd look at that date and be like probably around the 29th of October 2015, maybe in the weeks afterwards. Um, and you'd be right, of course. The date of this, this thing, that's been a few different things stitched together, does not give us the date, the age of this piece of material right here, or that piece there. Who knows how long this yellow stuff was hanging around in the person's material bag before they stitched it uh, together into this. Do you see how the date on the quilt does not indicate the date of the component fabric? What's Luke doing when he makes his biography of Jesus? He's pulling together sources that were already in existence. The stuff from the eyewitnesses. And do you see what he's getting at? Do you see what I'm getting at, sorry? (laughs) The date that we attach to his book is not the date that we'd, in our right mind, attach to much of the material that he's drawing from that's contained with this gap that's not that big to begin with is starting to look rather small indeed uh, the other thing to say is his sources he's talking about eyewitnesses now the events of Jesus were clearly you know something out of the ordinary they're clearly these life transforming whoa like life defining sorts of events um, the sorts of stories that you tell and you retell, and, and you retell again. Like when a couple talks about, um, tells the story of when they first met. I first met my wife in um, uh, 1999, and I was 14, and she was 12. And we're, uh, this car that she was driving in, um, I knew the person who was giving her a lift, and it stopped to give me a lift as well to this um, youth club uh, thing. And I got into the, the front seat of the car, and I turned around to my future wife, and I said, first thing I ever said to her was, you go to my school, don't you? <laughs> now, I've told that story time and time again, um, over what, 17 years now? You're 17 years, we're already like over half the gap. Um, it has not changed out of all proportion. If I suddenly had it as the, you know, it was a Ferrari that pulled up, and then I had, instead of that silly line that I said, that I had some like super significant um, line that I, I gave to, to my future wife, um, she'd just hear me saying it, be like, don't be so ridiculous. That's not how it happened. Um, there's a kind of safety in the retail. It comes down into this fixed form. Um, and when, as we're telling the story, we know our different parts that we're... This gap is nothing, really. The other eyewitnesses that were around would shut down anyone who was, like, painting some... It, it's all within, comfortably within one lifetime. This is not about a naive, blind faith. It's not that. And thanks to the textual criticism, we have access to the beginning of the chain, to what they were um, actually wrote. And it's not at all unreasonable to trust what they wrote. That's the end of our our second lecture. I don't know how I did on time. Given up. Twelve.
<laughs> right, we're done then. Um, what I'm saying is, to that person who asked me last week, this is not just a beautiful story. This is not just catching a glimpse of, you know, the, the God who would compassionately intervene to save the, the trapped and, and deliver and forgive and invite us into a beautiful God-reflecting vocation. It is absolutely all of that. It is stunningly beautiful. It does make our hearts sing. It's also real. And when you lift the lid on how this came to be, actually, you get the sniff of reality. It's not some blind faith. The story of Israel being raised up out of Egypt, the story of Jesus being raised up from the grave. It's an invitation as we get into the Bible this year to to look at what actually happened and to see and this is amazing that the creator of it all writes the deepest truth over all of us in Jesus' blood that we are loved and that is reality this isn't a nice theological idea this is the kind of stuffness of, of the universe that we're talking about. So maybe you've held this at arm's length. Uh, maybe you've you know, thought this is, you can't really be sure on this stuff. And I guess you can't. You know, there's bright scholars who go both ways, but it's not something you can dismiss. Um, and actually it answers our intuitions of beauty and justice. There is deep meaning to be found in this mystery that we call life. There's a beautiful invitation to respond to. I'm not stood here um, because I was good at RE in school and then, you know, one thing has led to another and what else do you do? No. I'm here because I'm convinced that this is true, that this is reality. And so I'm all in. And for me and my life, that looks... God's taken me and my life and made of me another one of those people who, week in, week out, stands up and tells his story, carries on telling the story, carries on inviting people into it. And I'm stood here now inviting you into it, to take another step into it, perhaps your first step. What has he got in store for you? What will he make of you? He wants you to join in with everything you are. Just echo that word that, that Rich was texted. That's, that's what it is. We're not talking about a little hobby. Actually, this is reality. This is your life. This is the invitation of the creator of it all, who loves you, who wants what's best for you, who's working through it all for your good, and now calls to you. Will you say yes? Let's stand. And what I would like to do is lead us in a prayer. I'm going to have a moment of silence uh, just between you and God. And I'd encourage you to open up to him. And maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you've never done this before. Uh, maybe all of this, you know, this is just 
for the the naive and the gullible, and um, I'm not really, you know, I'm just here for the free coffee or something. Um, maybe looking under the lid has has given this stuff a chance, a hearing. Give God a chance. Open up. Ask Him, God. How about it? What is what is this? Show me you. Show me yourself. And then I'm going to lead us in a prayer of response. So come Holy Spirit. Come whisper the truth of your invitation deep into our hearts. Come and show us who you are. Another one of the Jesus biographies, John, John's Gospel, says that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him may not perish but be a part of his eternal life, have eternal life. Whoever would say yes. That's all all we need to do. And I've prayed this prayer many, many times, every opportunity I'm given really. But it's a big prayer. And it's a prayer of saying thank you to God, of of saying uh, admitting our need for Him, turning away from all of the ways that we live our lives anti God. Accepting his gracious offer of forgiveness. And then inviting him to be in charge for the rest of our days. It's a big prayer. But he invites you to pray it. To come into, come under his sweet, demanding, costly, wonderful, Authority. So you can just echo this in your hearts. You could say it quietly to yourself if that's helpful. But here we go. Lord God of it all, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your intervention into the mess of this world. And we thank you for intervening with us, offering us an our mess, your grace. And so we admit before you that we need you that we've done plenty of things that are not of you that are not with you and we're sorry and we ask that you forgive us
and we thank you for your generosity, your kindness, the hope that you breathe right now into those parts of our lives. So we surrender all that we are to you. We trust you. And we ask that you come and be the boss from this moment onwards. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. As I said, many of us will have prayed that prayer an awful lot of times. If that is the first time that you've prayed it, um, first time it's like, well, that, that really, that was really true and meaningful for me. Can I encourage you to come and let me know? Or come and let Rich know? To tell someone about that. Because that's significant. And this is something we do together, this following Jesus thing. It's not a kind of a secret. <laughs> this is um, life together. And we need each other to wrap our arms around each other and spur us on and pick us up again when we get it wrong and, and all of that. So come and let us know. Um, it won't be scary or anything. We'll just um, slap you on the back and say, well done, and uh, pray for you and um, begin to support you. Um, so I'd love to, love to chat with you if that's you. Uh, I'm going to shut up now and hand over to Fraser.